me now as we look at the scripture passage, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, from which Pastor Wayne is going to be preaching in just a few moments. Starting with verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your creation. Thank you for Christ. And thank you for your word. Open our hearts now to receive your word as Pastor Wayne has prepared to preach from this passage. May we both be challenged and encouraged from hearing your word proclaimed this morning. It's for these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, sometimes when you come together for worship, I mean, it's just good to be here with one another. And then other times you come and um, you open your Bible and, I mean, it just pierces you like a double-edged sword, doesn't it? Today might be one of those days. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit is speaking to the church through the Apostle Paul. And he's given this powerful indicative. He said, since you have been raised with Christ, that's not a command, that's a fact. Since you've been raised with Christ, what? Set your minds on things above, okay? Put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, coveting, all of that stuff that used to be a part of your old life that that comes out of an idolatrous mindset. Verse seven, put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, that's verse eight. Don't lie to one another. You don't do that anymore, do you? That's verse nine. Put on the new self that's being renewed in knowledge after the image of your creator, verse 10. And as a result of that, that fact, you now refuse to allow cultural, religious, social, or racial barriers to create division among you. You won't allow it. Here's another indicative. You've been chosen by God to be holy and beloved. In other words, being a new creation is what motivated you to lay aside the old self. When you were born again in Christ, that's what motivated you to put on the new self. So so what is behind behind this this act of of grace that's, that's pouring forth from your life? Well, it's because you were chosen to be holy and beloved. So the commands that follow are based on this fact. You were chosen, chosen by the sovereign grace of a holy God to be born again in Christ through his atoning death. That's the reason that you are a new person who now grows in the knowledge of the Lord according to his word. That's the reason you walk in fellowship with him according to his spirit. So given that fact, what does your life look like now? Well, Paul tells you what it ought to look like. He gives you these spiritual truths that are increasingly true about you. 
that just like when you get up in the morning, you put on physical clothes that represent your taste and fashion, represent your style. These spiritual clothes represent who you are in Christ. Do you see what those are? Here's, he's describing you here. You now have hearts that are compassionate. You've developed the ability to empathize with other people. You're kind. You, you have the ability to speak to others with gentleness. And you're humble. You're meek in the way you treat others. You're very patient. You've learned to bear with one another. And you're quick to forgive. The key to all of that is how you perceive the Lord has treated you. You with me? As you understand how the Lord has treated, has treated you in these ways, and now that you are in Christ, this is how you treat others. Look at the, look at the end of verse 11. That says, you know, we, we've got to keep this in its proper context. Paul makes this statement. There's no distinction within the body of Christ. None. There's no racial, social, cultural, religious distinctions. Christ is all and in all. That's the reason. Throughout Colossians, Paul uses this term all to refer to the deity of Christ. He is all of God. He is, he is all of God's holiness, righteousness, kindness, graciousness. He's all God in the flesh and and. He is in all of us due to the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So the point is this. As we've been recipients of God's grace, we now treat others graciously. In other words, we, we, we don't really have the right to, to go back and live the way we used to live. We, we don't have the right to be our old person anymore. We do not have that right because we've been chosen We've been called. We've been converted. We are now commissioned as the beloved of God to live with an eternal purpose. Now, this does require discipline, it's, it, but it's not something that we can necessarily produce on our own. You can't do it. It is something that comes out of you because Christ is within you. When they renovated the Sistine Chapel, they went over that masterpiece inch by inch, and they removed every smudge, every speck of dirt. They removed anything that was not put there by Michelangelo. When they restored the, the um, uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, you know what they did? They magnified that thing, magnified it. It went inch by inch. They brought in an art expert. His name was uh, Panin um, Barcelon. Panin Barcelon. And, and they, they removed every fleck of paint, every piece of bacteria that didn't belong to Leonardo. And they covered about a quarter of an inch a day. Do you know how much money that cost? Do you know how long that took? Why? Why would you spend that much money and spend that much time on these paintings? Because they can't be replaced. They're masterpieces. You know, if the Sistine Chapel was restored today, 
by some who call themselves Christians. And you look at the way they treat others within the body of Christ, which is far more valuable than the chapel, far more valuable than paintings of the Last Supper. We're talking about the way they treat those Christ died for, the way they treat those who are beloved of God, whom the Holy Spirit has sealed for eternity. If we look at the way they treat them, if they treated the chapel in that same way, it'd be like taking janitor and a drum and just throwing it in. In the 15th and 16th centuries, the culture didn't believe in disciplining the king's sons, the princes. Um, so they assigned them what was called whipping boys. And so to keep order in the house and to maintain a standard of, of punishment for wrong behavior, whenever the king's son misbehaved, they whipped another boy in his place. And it was usually his best friend. And the idea was, when you see your best friend being beaten because of what you did, it would lead you to repentance. Now, you may not agree with that approach to child discipline, but you know what it demonstrates? It demonstrates how they perceive nobility. You don't whip someone beloved of God. Paul says, as holy and beloved, treat one another in a very meticulous way. You know, when I do weddings, I will say, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And the father, and I know how tough this is because I've done it three times. It's brutal. The father, usually fighting back tears. I've run into a few fathers that are kind of glad to, to have her move on. But, 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 but most of the time, most of the time, they, they stand there with trepidation in their voice and concern in their heart. And you can hear their voice quiver as they say, <clears throat> her mother and I do. And then he puts the hand of this precious girl in the hand of this fellow. That Chuck Swindoll says is like putting a Stradivarius violin in the hands of a gorilla. I don't think Chuck was real thrilled about passing his daughter on, but his point was, this is the most precious thing the Lord has given me on earth, and I'm about to give it to this guy. And that father will say, you better take care of her. One guy who married a girl from Houston said his father-in-law worked on the oil rigs there. He was a macho, macho kind of guy. And he agreed to let his daughter be married to him. But he said to me, you better treat her well, or I will kill you. And he said, you know, I don't think he was trying to be nasty. I don't think he was trying to be mean, but I don't think he was joking either. He was compassionately warning this guy in advance for his own good. You better treat my daughter well, even if you have to do it out of fear. Now, that's not exactly what this text is talking about. Because we don't treat one another out of fear. Though the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says, over and over and over, it says it many times, the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. But our motivation comes out of a genuine love for the one who's chosen us. The one who has made us holy. The one who has made us beloved. 
The love we have received from him is what motivates us to live with hearts that are compassionate. And this word for compassion is, is the word from which we get the word bowels. Bowels. It, it means that from the innermost part of your being, out of the nature of Christ within you, you're sensitive to the suffering of others. In Matthew 18, Christ was asked, who is the greatest? Remember what he said? Bring that child to me. Bring that child. And he said, unless you come as a child, you don't get into the kingdom. And he said, whoever receives this child receives me. And anyone who harms this child is really better for them to have a millstone wrapped around their neck and thrown into the bottom of the sea. Do you understand his point? Do you understand his point? Only a deranged person would hurt one of my children. This English word compassion is the same in Greek as it is in English. It means with painful emotion. Painful emotion. I deeply care about you. I deeply care about you because of how the Lord has cared about me. And another garment that Christ enables us to wear is this garment of kindness. You know, the root word in, in Greek is the word for useful. <laughs> Isn't that odd? What do you think he's saying here? Do, do we consider a person worthless when they are so wrapped up in themselves that they are unkind? You ever met anybody like that? All of life is about them. The whole world revolves around what they want, their needs, how they feel. It's about them. And that's one of the reasons that we generally don't like people who are like that. We don't like people who are unkind. George, Mar George Bernard Shaw once sent a note to Winston Churchill and said, enclosed is a ticket to the opening night of my first play. Bring a friend if you have one. And Churchill responded, I'm sorry that I'm unable to attend the first night of your play due to a prior engagement. Please send me a ticket to the second night if there is one. I don't know. Maybe that's just friendly banter back and forth between old friends, but I do know this. The old natural man that comes from the seed of Adam takes great delight in being unkind, in putting down others to build themselves up. That old life, that old life that was buried in Christ was by nature very self-centered. This word kindness is the same word that Christ uses when he says, Matthew 11, my yoke is Christates. Christates. My yoke is kind. It's translated there easy, meaning it's not harsh. And here's what else you're wearing. Humility and meekness. What's that? It's the ability to exalt others ahead of yourself. Did you realize that humility is a real long word here? What's that? That's a combination of a bunch of negative concepts is what that is. You know why? They don't have a word for humility in Greek. He has to put this together. All these negative concepts. Why? The Greeks were so proud they didn't even have a word for humility. 
And yet the Lord said that Christ was willing to lower himself to the point of becoming a man that sinners, sinners might be reconciled to their creator. Therefore, ergo, those whom he has atoned for, those who are born again in him, they lower themselves in the same sense that he does. They put off pride and arrogance and they put on this incredible trait of not thinking more highly of themselves than they really ought. You ever notice that when people try to outdo serving others instead of trying to get their own way, that there's almost, it's almost impossible to have an argument? You can't have a disagreement when, when you're trying to outdo one another in serving one another's needs. There's nothing there to create an argument. Now, this, this word for humility does not mean that, you know, that you're walking around with this kind of low, depressing attitude of, woe is me, you know, look how humble I am. No, 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 no. All that stuff, that's pride. That's pride. That's saying, I'm trying to draw attention to myself by showing you how humble I am. Winston Churchill once said of Stafford Cripps, his political nemesis who was trying to get his job actually he said for the grace of God there goes God in other words Cripps thought so highly of himself he thought that he was God and Churchill found it repulsive you know those who truly are humble truly humble you want to see a truly humble person they're always exalting other people for God's glory they're never, they're never trying to draw attention to themselves and making it about themselves. And then he uses this word, protes, meekness. A lot of times people mistakenly see meekness as, as weakness. No, 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 no. That's not true. To be meek is to be very strong. Very strong, but under control. You remember, um, as you... As you Remember how you were saved by the grace of God? You remember how long-suffering he was with you when you were in your rebellion? Well, someone who is meek remembers that. They remember who they are and how the Lord has treated them. And so now, it really takes a lot to offend them. And the more I have learned this in my life, the easier it is for me to not be offended. I have been give, forgiven too much for you to be able to offend me. I'm not gonna, I, I don't know that you can do it. I mean, you, you might be able to hurt my feelings if you talk ugly enough, but you're not gonna be able to offend me and I'm not gonna hold any grudges against you. Why? I've been forgiven too much. You know, Paul said in Romans 12, you need to outdo one another in showing honor. Well, that's what people who are truly humble do. That's meekness. That's gentleness. It's when you exalt others in the body of Christ the way Christ exalted others. And he exalted children and beggars and disabled and sick and poor. He, he exalted all kinds of people. As a matter of fact, even when he goes to, to Mary and Martha's house in order to call forth his friend Lazarus out of the tomb, he knew, he knew that was going to lead to his crucifixion. He goes into town and what does he do? 
What does he do when he goes into town knowing that they are, they are behind closed doors right now plotting how they're going to arrest him and crucify him? What does he do? He gets down on his knees and washes dust from the feet of those pathetic disciples. You know, chances are this is probably the reason many of you got married, isn't it? I mean, even if it wasn't true, you believed, you believed that that person, when you were in that dating period, you thought this person considered you to be special because of how they exalted you. They loved you. There wasn't anything they weren't willing to do for you. And you said to yourself, man, I could spend the rest of my life with a person like this. The problem is, once you're married, and those two people quit honoring one another within the marriage, they quit exalting one another and what happens? One or both mates begin wondering in their quiet time, have I just made the biggest mistake of my life? Yoking myself together with somebody I thought would exalt me and they're making my life miserable. Numbers 12.3 says that Moses was the meekest man on earth and yet Moses at times could be hard as nails. And Moses could rise up in anger at the proper time for the right reasons. Righteous indignation. So meekness is not weakness. No. Meekness is courage. And it's strength. That's under conviction. That is controlled by the Lord. You're angry at that which is wrong. Not necessarily wrong that offends you but is just when you see other people mistreating people, that does anger you. Why? Because you have a love for people like Christ had a love for people. When they drugged that woman out there and said, we're going to stone her, he said, really? Let he who is without sin cast that first stone then. And then he says, woman, go and sin no more. I'm not going to allow this. At times, though we are compassionate, we are kind, we are humble, we are meek, we can find some people to be exasperating, can't we? I mean, can some people push our buttons and push us to the limit to where we get to, I mean, we get to the point where we don't really want to be kind anymore? We really don't. What enables us then to be kind? What enables us to do that? We remember we remember who we are. We are objects of divine mercy. We're objects of grace. We're objects of God's love who was long-suffering with us. Therefore, ergo, being in Christ, we are long-suffering with them when they sin against us. That's what it means here by bearing with one another. It means that we endure injustice. You know, when someone doesn't treat us kindly, that does not give us a right to treat them unkindly. You don't return evil for evil. Two wrongs never make a right. You know, whenever I hear someone say, well, they did this and so therefore I did that. Wait a minute. How does their sin against you justify you sinning against them? Now, this does not mean that we make doormats out of ourselves. It doesn't mean that we, we put ourselves in a position whereby we, we receive constant abuse. All it means is we don't return tit for tat. 
The rest of that, that passage in the book of Romans, you know, he's writing to the church there in Rome and he gives you eight chapters of, of wonderful doctrine there, including antinomianism. He addresses that in six and seven. But then when he, he finishes in eight, he goes into Israel past in, in nine, Israel present in 10, Israel future in 11. And then when he gets to chapters 12 through 16, that's the application of all that wonderful doctrine. And what does he say in chapter 12? He says, you repay no one evil for evil. No one. You give thought to what is honorable in the sight of everyone. And if it is possible, if it's, sometimes it's not, but if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, you live peaceably with everyone. Never, never, never avenge yourself. You leave that to the Lord. Don't you be overcome by evil, but what does he tell you to do? What's the Holy Spirit say through Paul? You overcome evil with good. Why? That's the way the Lord has treated us. When we were being extremely unkind in our rebellion. And then Christ, who is all of God and who is in all of us, enables us now to respond when people are nasty to us. He enables us to not lash out at them because our new nature which needs to be brought to maturity through discipline. I understand that. But that new nature is at least seeking to respond as the Lord would have us to respond, to do so with mercy and with grace and with forgiveness. I mean, that's the basis for why we can be patient in long-suffering is the fact that we are in Christ and he is in us. Remember Joseph when his brothers were jealous, were going to kill him? Then one brother said, ah, why don't we make some money off of him, sold him some Ishmaelites, sent him down to Egypt, and there he goes to work for Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife approaches him, and he goes, no, I, can't, I cannot sin against my Lord in that way. And so she lies about him and gets thrown into prison. He's 17 years old, 17 years old. And he spends the next 13 years of his life in prison until he's 30. 13 years, all of his 20s, he's in prison. And then a time of famine comes and, and, the, and Pharaoh calls on him to, to come and, and to use his God-given wisdom to save the people, not just of Egypt, but to those who would come to Egypt for grain. And remember his brothers come down with their father, Jacob, whose name is Israel. And Israel brings his 66 members of his family down, puts them with Joseph and his wife and two kids. And so now this is a, a family of 70 that's going to grow into a nation of two and a half million over the next 430 years. But in that moment, when they come down and Israel dies, remember what happens? The brothers come to Joseph and go, what are you going to do, kill us? No, you deserve to be killed. But no, what you intended for evil the Lord intended for good as many lives are being saved. And Joseph spoke to them kindly and he comforted them. Vengeance is not mine. My job is to obey the Lord. And he who is holy will take care of the rest. And you know what? Fortunately, we do not have to write verses 12 and 13 on the back of our hand if verse 14 is true of us. Above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Perfect harmony. Compassion, kindness, humility, patience, long-suffering, all the bearing with one another. All of that is so much easier. It's so much easier if we are filled, filled with the kind of agape love the Lord had for us. 
Love is the attribute listed very first when the Holy Spirit tells us about the fruit of his presence. You know, if you try to live out these virtues apart from a Holy Spirit-induced love, I don't think you can do it. I don't think you can do it. And you can deceive yourself in believing that you can do it. And if you try to manufacture this stuff by human means, you know what you end up with? Legalism. And where does legalism lead you? It leads you into self-righteousness. Now you're all puffed up with how humble you are. And where does that lead you? That leads you into Phariseeism. And what will Christ say at the last day? Depart from me, I never knew you. This is not something that is humanly manufactured. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, it's just a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. This has to come from being born again. And look what he says in verse 15 as he wraps it up. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. You know, this verse is often taken out of context and completely misapplied. You know, people usually quote this when they're trying to make a big decision. You know, uh, I've got the peace of Christ ruling in my heart. No, that's not what this is talking about. In, in this context, this is not about decision making. This is, is not talking about a human heart. This is a plural word. You know what it's talking about? Collective hearts within the church. The word blabuo is our term for umpire. Our word for referees. Like if you've ever watched a boxing match, whenever the boxers get too close and they, they begin to clinch one another, hit below the belt, or, or they, they start butting heads, a referee steps between them and parts them. That's this word for peace. Peace of Christ, this is, that's this word for rule. The peace of Christ is not talking about a decision. It's talking about the fruit of the Holy Spirit that enables us to be patient and forgiving as the body of Christ. It is a peace brought about by Christ that rules in our life. Why? Because God chose you for that. He loves you. He's forgiven you. He's called you, converted you. He's placed you in the body of Christ. So how can you be unloving or verbally abusive to others whom the Lord loves? I mean, what this piece is talking about is it's when two Christians are in conflict with one another and someone steps in and says, stop it. Hold your tongue. Apologize. Say you're sorry. And when that happens, the referee in the hearts of the body of Christ, the referee steps in to bring a supernatural peace between two in conflict, and the one who does that is Christ. That's the peace of Christ that rules in our hearts. Let me give you a little background as to why he uses this, this in, in this way. In Proverbs 18, it says, the lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. What's that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, if there wasn't enough evidence to arrive at an informed judgment, you were to seek God's wisdom by casting lots rather than resorting to violence. The edict of God 
was to be revealed in the casting of lots. That's to be the final word. Well, the Lord is the one who comes between contenders, resolves the quarrel, and brings peace. When he speaks, men are not to argue. That's the Old Testament. Bring it into the New Testament. God's word is the lot. That's the lot that decides. When two people engage in a conflict, if you are not willing to obey the lot, obey God's word, we cannot help you here. We can't. I would love to help you, but I can't do it. If you have no respect for God's word, to bring yourself in obedience beneath God's word, I cannot help you. That's what this means. He's telling you, let the peace of Christ rule like a referee in your hearts. And you know what? If you look back in history, right up to the present time, the church throughout the ages, throughout the centuries, in many cases has made an absolute fool of itself because they won't obey this. You will have people who will, will come into a congregation and with petty, angry, backbiting gossip will rip it apart. And then they will get up and go to another congregation and do it again. And they'll go from congregation to congregation to congregation, stirring up dissension. And so why does Paul use this expression, peace of Christ? Well, that again needs maybe just a little bit of background information. In that day, they had what was called Pax Romana. Pax Romana is the peace of Rome. It's the reason that a Roman citizen could travel safely anywhere within the empire. You know why? Because if you violated, if you violated Pax Romana, Caesar would deal with you and he would deal with you harshly. That's why on two separate occasions, when the Apostle Paul was arrested, they were going to beat him to death. And he asked them, will you beat a Roman citizen? That's Acts 22. And the centurion says, whoa, 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 time out, stop. Uh, you're a Roman citizen? Paul said, that's right. You know what they did? They turned him loose. Why? You don't mistreat a Roman citizen under the peace of Rome. They immediately withdrew and were afraid because if they follow through with doing this to Paul as a Roman citizen, Caesar will deal with them. Severe consequences. That's the cultural environment in which this is written. And he's saying that in the church, the peace of Christ is to prevail. You violate that. You don't have to deal with Caesar. You have to deal with the Lord yourself, the Lord who is holy. So let me ask you, is there anyone in here who needs a divine referee in your home? And don't, don't raise your hand. Don't be elbowing your spouse or anything. Just, just answer in your own mind, do you? Anyone in here with a broken heart because of contention? Anybody in here wounded because of unkind words that have been spoken? Because of selfish behavior that you have endured or maybe you have thrust on someone else the Lord says let the peace of Christ rule because let me tell you if you are continually contentious you will live a very lonely and difficult life 
And the reason is, is no one, no one likes an unkind, impatient, arrogant, self-centered person. To say, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts is to say, the nobility of this body, the church, the body of Christ, and the greatness of our Lord motivates us to live in harmony. How are we going to do that? We let Christ rule in all things. And boy, are we thankful for that. Aren't we? Are we not grateful that we don't have to endure the kind of strife that comes from arrogant, self-absorbed individuals who behave in such ways that, that it hurts? It hurts people. And that wants to find who we were at one time, didn't it? That's not us anymore. As Christians, by the grace of God, we experience these divine characteristics of Christ. You know why? Because Christ is all of God and in all of us, ruling in our hearts as his body. So if you lack compassion or kindness or humility or patience or mercy, you having a hard time forgiving? Is it because that you're not in Christ? Or is it because you need help? You need help putting to death the earthly stuff that Paul talked about earlier. You got to put it to death so that you can put on the life that you've been given in Christ. Wrapping yourself in his love. That enables you then to love others the way he loves you. Do you need mercy? Anybody in here need grace? Anybody need forgiveness? You can't find it anyplace else. There, it's no place else in this world but in Christ. He's the only one who has made atonement for sinners. And for those who are born again in Christ, he rules. He rules in our hearts. That's what enables us to live together in peace.